0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Found Consulting. Good morning, Karen. How are you? I am thrilled.
1: Okay, freedom. (laughs) Tell me about your morning.
0: Well, it started at 6.30am. I went to get my haircut. It's not much; you can't see, but I'm growing it out. So that's all that hideous thing in the back is all gone. My kids are all back at school and childcare. So mixed Have feelings fun. at the moment of joy and happiness. So are they? Um, they're they're really happy to be back. So and you know what? The weather's great. Yeah, out in North Melbourne, Central Street here is just so um, there's people about. People are just just this air of relief. Yeah. So it was just yeah. it's just so nice. How about how's your morning been?
1: Well, Sophie, if you can bring up, this is what I did at 7.30 this morning. I was the first person at my local, at my favourite coffee shop. And I reckon you'll see the photo of what I had. It's not the healthiest food. Not sure we're going too well with that. Anyway, so anyway, I I had um, breakfast at my local coffee shop. I was the first person there. And I just loved watching them being able to get out and serve people, people sitting down outside in the sun. It was just beautiful. All right. Well, look, let's get on with things, okay? We've got quite a lot on today, and I guess the first one is the New South Wales Supreme Court has been the first jurisdiction to deal with a claim brought by 10 different people across education, construction and other industries saying that the New South Wales government orders were illegal, they were breach of certain implied freedoms that existed, and the Supreme Court were pretty clear about it. They said, A, there are no such freedoms as, as described. Even if there were, they certainly wouldn't have offended them and that a public health order is designed to prevent people's movements, and that's what it did. And it's intended to ensure people are safe, and the requirement to be vaccinated to work is one of those, and it doesn't impose the right to not violate someone's body by forcing them to be injected. There's a choice about injection. It just has consequences if you don't have it. But what it did do, which I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the decision of Kimber, where uh, Deputy President Dean, who was the minority um, Deputy President, went off in a bit of a frolic of her own around freedoms and rights and the efficacy of vaccinations. It was absolutely scathing of her decision, describing it as a political pamphlet, actually.
0: Quite rightly, I might add. No surprises, really, though, Andrew. No, no, no.
1: As I said to you, when someone publishes a decision like that, a whole lot of people grab hold of it, but when it gets in front of people who are actually real lawyers, they look at it and they tear it to pieces. Mm. Now, there is no human rights charter in New South Wales or any other other part of our Commonwealth. There is a human rights charter that exists in Victoria, but the reasoning of the New South Wales Supreme Court will be adopted in Victoria And equally, they will be just as scathing of DP Dean's decision in Kimber for the same reasons that it has no legal merit at all. So we do have a charter here. It does create certain protections, but there is no protection that it creates which is impugned by a public health order. All public health orders do is say, I'm going to stop you from creating a risk, preventing your travel to such and such a place. I'm going to require certain health status if you need to work with other people. That's not impugning any freedom at all, because it is a community freedom, not an individual freedom that's being managed. So a really interesting decision, but as I said to you the last two weeks, there is absolutely no surprises at all in the decision.
0: Yeah, interesting decision, but I also think a very significant decision, Andrew, in terms of just providing that clarity around what is the right thing, and in terms of um. Because like you said, people grab a hold of it and there's noise that comes out of it. That not, not to say that this silences that, but this resolves in terms of any contention around whether something is legal or not.
1: And look, we the social media sites grabbed that decision and immediately reworked their letters for employees to send to employers. And we've seen numerous of those versions of DP Dean's letters coming through to us, resisting it with the questions around, you know, why is this properly a safety concern? show me the efficacy of this vaccine, all of this sort of stuff that was dealt with. So it does create noise and creates quite dangerous noise. I guess the other part is vaccination hadn't been mandatory, we wouldn't have seen the level of first dose vaccination we've seen. So the the level of public safety would have been significantly lower, but for mandatory orders that came out. That's more of a political conversation than a a legal conversation. Next case, which I, I think is Hasn't been decided. There's been charges laid against Qantas for um, WHS—that's Work Health and Safety discrimination. Some of you will be old enough to remember 2012. I think all of you are probably, when Patrick Stevedores were prosecuted and went on to appeal around this a decision where they sacked a union shop steward for not accepting the safety system around a particular loading practice, and um, the shop stewards reasons for being concerned about it were not properly addressed in a risk assessment and, in fact, were quite reasonable in the circumstances. But there was a level of frustration around the manner in which he did. Full court in Victoria, full court, Supreme Court, not only upheld the verdict but upheld the sentence for $180,000. Now, in all all jurisdictions, there's individual liability around about $50,000, corporate liability about $250,000. For treating somebody adversely particularly health and safety representatives for raising a health health and safety concern. What's happened at Qantas is a health and safety representative has raised concerns about the inadequacy of PPE when cleaning plants. We won't know the true facts because what Qantas said is that this HSR was involved in spreading scurrilous rumours about particularly on Chinese planes about the risk that around where the infection came from and was actually disrupting cleaning as a result of it. But what I do want to highlight now is during vaccination times, we're going to have, and we've already had, I should say, not only health and safety representatives, but other people raising, as concerns, vaccination. And I want to be clear, when a health and safety representative says to you, look, we're very concerned about mandatory vaccination, they are raising a safety concern. The manner in which you deal with that, particularly under mandatory, a mandatory order, is to be clear and consult with them about it, but to say there is no, we have no choice around it because here is the mandatory order, provide them with a copy of the order and say we'll be enforced. But if we were to do something to that person as a result, if we sought to stand them down because of them raising it, then you would unquestionably be in breach of the safety legislation. Okay? So remember, there are two parts to this equation. That is, we will have people resist vaccination, Deal with that in the way that we've described every single time, which is you don't have a choice where it relates to a mandatory order. Where it's not a mandatory order, then you need to do your OHS review around risk assessment. That can be contentious, and therefore there is a dispute process that exists under OHS legislation. Consult under those processes where it's not a mandatory order. Do the right process and then enforce if that's what's necessary. But do not get drawn into this thing of punishing a person because they raise it and seek to frustrate a process, there's two different conducts. The HSR role, deal with it specifically, mandatory order, explain what the mandatory order is, and say we will be proceeding. non mandatory order, show the risk assessment, make sure it's a valid risk assessment, proceed with what you're going to do. If they continue to frustrate and do things which are outside of their HSR role, which is, in other words, to act unlawfully, then you put them on notice that action will be taken and why it will be taken. And that is not a breach of safety legislation. That's misconduct behaviour. You must keep them well and truly separate. So that's pretty interesting case. I think it's interesting for a whole lot of reasons. I think it's something that a number of people, the anti-vaccination lobby, are not terribly sophisticated at the moment and very individualistic. They haven't started to try and use regulators to enforce their process, but unquestionably they will shortly or in the future.
0: Andrew, just quickly on that one, what I'm hearing from that is that when an issue or concern is raised, I think let's not make sweeping judgments about what we think the issue is or what that person is agitated about. There could be a, like a valid reason or concern that they want to raise and explore and investigate and yes you know, want to be consulted on or whatever. It could be that you know there is you know, maybe just to, to, to frustrate a process like you say, but by you know just making a decision or labelling people or a certain action, you actually don't understand what the issue is and you actually can't apply the right process in terms of managing it.
1: That's a good comment. Can I just say we we've talked to you earlier about what is the union position on mandatory vaccination? I don't think there is a very good position, is the short answer. And I think it depends on the nature of the people that they're dealing with as to how they will respond. And we've seen yesterday the CFMEU Mining Division seek to frustrate the process that's being rolled out through BHP. And they're at their Mount Arthur mine have said, look, education, support, they're all the things you should be having to do with miners. There's no mandatory order in New South Wales in respect of mining. And so they've put it into dispute and it's off to conciliation in the next few days. I think where you're a larger organisation, you are going to find unions engaged because this is something which they get a buy-in from membership and which creates headlines. I think in smaller organisations with lower level of unionism, you're not going to hear about it. But the larger organisations will get hit by union attacks on this issue in the non-mandated areas. So just be aware of that. All right. Now, the topic that Karen and I were going to talk about today was code of conducts and Part of doing that, I guess, is because we're about to have people starting to come back to work where they are back in work in New South Wales and have been working in other states and territories, but Victoria, and probably in those times, Victorian people are about to start coming back to work as well. We've let drift a lot of organisations because we've not tried to deal with too much discipline issues while people have been working remotely because it's been hard innately doing that. But we are going to start performance managing people and the place our performance management lives is in its code of conduct. Um, Karen's got a great graphic, which she'll show you shortly. But remember, organisations act lawfully, then through the lens of their values and behaviours to create a series of rules which identify what is good behaviour. And be careful that your code of conduct just doesn't define bad behaviour. Because what we're trying to generate in people is an understanding of what good looks like. The thing is, when you create good, you must communicate through everything you do what is good, not wait for people to do what turns out to be wrong, and come and run with them the code of conduct and say, see, so you breached this. So, every part of our working life should involve what our code of conduct describes as good because we want people to know what good is. If everyone works good, we have a good organisation. The difficulty really comes when, say, we've got the perfect code of conduct, but Karen comes into work 10 minutes late every day. Okay, now, what's good in our organisation is complying with the rules of the organisation. Say the rule of the organisation is being at work at 8.30. But because of Karen's seniority in the business, I say nothing. And then Annie who works for Karen comes in 10 minutes late. And I say to Annie, look, I need to have a chat with you. You're coming in late. Can I do that if I let Karen come in late? Or after Karen does it for a number of days, can I go, look, I'm going to have to give you a warning, Karen, you're constantly coming in late. Well, the answer is a legal concept called waiver. And what waiver says is when you have full knowledge of a person's misconduct and you choose to do nothing about it, you are no longer able to take action in respect of it. And that's what we call condemnation. That is, you can't punish what you don't prevent. Now, for the schools, we'll be sending out shortly a detailed article on what's known as the Hugging Teacher case, which was a teacher at St Kevin's who touched students, had downloaded some pornography, was unduly close to people, involved in some discussions with kids, which was inappropriate. A whole range of things. In schools, you have a non delegable duty towards your children at common law, and you have child-safe legislation, which requires you to intervene and protect the children. And that didn't happen in this case in a manner that was expected. This eventually came through to the full bench in the Commission after the teacher was terminated, and the full bench said, given the gravity of the misconduct, the condemnation in this case will not prevent the termination of the teacher, okay? But had it had been less, undoubtedly the condemnation would have prevented the termination. So it was a lesser misconduct, so regularly turning up late, speaking in abusive tones to other teachers, doing other things that didn't place the very charge of the school, which is protecting children at Jeopardy, then that condemnation would have prevented determination. And in the case I gave of Annie coming in late because Karen came in late, the fact that we condone Karen doing that means we're unable to punish other people. So this concept of condemnation comes to the very heart of how we manage people because once we say what is good, we must police it because it is good and it actually makes your organisation better. So it's a good management. But remember, the downside is if you don't do that, then you have this other risk. And the other risk is very serious risk that you have no disciplinary tools left in your toolkit because you've condoned it. And the last part of that is like any form of infection, when I get a sore on my arm, I can treat it very easily when it's a local infection. I can clean it with betadine, make sure it's swabbed. I can get maybe stitches in if it's a bad one. It's very easy to treat. But if I allow that infection to become systemic, to spread throughout my body, it can become fatal. And it's very, very hard to treat. Remember, when we let things get away from us, other people learn from that behaviour going out. Particularly if it's someone senior you let do it, people beneath them go, well, if it's good enough for them, I'll do it. And their behaviours become more agrariously wrong, but also we're not able to prevent them and if we do, we find ourselves in deep trouble. So, Karen, I thought I might throw across because you've got a, a great model that you can throw up to us and talk to talk to us about it. Yeah, sure.
0: Thanks, Andrew. So, look, the code of conduct really, I'll put together this diagram for you all. So, yeah, you know, hopefully it's useful to you in terms of the code of conduct really sits in the middle of this hierarchy in terms of how it fits in terms of the organisational, cultural and operational hierarchy. It all stems from your organisational values being really clear about organisationally what makes up your identity and that ties in your vision, mission, um, your purpose as well. Of course, it's going to be underpinned by um, the law and regulations in terms of what the the law prescribes as being um, good or necessary. But from there, underpinned by that, the code of conduct really makes very clear to everyone in your organisation what good looks like. Now, the important part from this stage is to make sure that the language filters through, and the behaviours filter through and across your organisation. So, by that, are you actually speaking the way that you you know speaking or living true to the words that you've captured to the code of conduct? So, like Andrew said, it's this is about cultivating a certain a culture. If I can call it that. It's probably not a great way of framing it, but it's very deliberate. And we have to be deliberate. And it is a daily, everyday thing. Every interaction, it comes down to who we are. And because when you do that and when you're conscious about that, and particularly as leaders and managers who are responsible for leading the way and demonstrating this and also for making sure that we are accountable to this, it's very easy to pick out when behaviour is poor or where something doesn't sit quite right. Now, when that happens, you go back to your code of conduct you can see why where that inconsistent actually is. It occurs quite naturally, but it, it's a very deliberate process. So, Andrew, I think earlier before our session today, we talked in terms of some of your work you've done previously about incentivising and, and remunerating people also by using the values in the code of conduct.
1: Yeah, look, can I, just before I do that, I, I think the importance of what Karen's diagram shows you is that each policy and procedure is referable to the code of conduct. And that's why the Code of Conduct is the head document. It is the document that says, this is what good looks like, and then the policies and procedures demonstrate how that is managed, but it is always referable to the Code of Conduct. When we do incentive programs for more senior people and look at their remuneration, my habit in drafting those is always to have a gateway to incentives. So you don't get an incentive through this gateway unless short-term incentives are inclined to have Five measures, okay? Long-term incentives are inclined to be nine. Short-term incentives are inclined to be much more deliberate on key financial short-term outcomes and key behaviours. Long-term incentives are about capital valuation, client outcomes and a broader policy setting around people. That's that's how you actually juggle them together. But in the two of five, so out of five that you normally have in a short-term incentive, two are behavioural key behaviors you're looking from as karen says you know be careful what you're what you're cultivating here because if you incentivize people they will do it so we focus very strongly around two issues and in those two issues to get through the gateway you mustn't score less than three on anyone and you must have an average of greater than 3.5 out of five that's my gateway process i use which says to anybody if i want the benefit of the incentive that i'm going to get if I don't actually hit the code of conduct behaviours, I get nothing. And that's something we should be thinking about as we draft that incentive system because incentive systems that don't look towards good behaviour invariably create bad behaviour. So, Karen, that's my my comment on it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I always say to the, all the time to clients in terms of be careful what you reward because what gets rewarded does, gets done, right? So make sure that they're the things that you want to see. So crossing the line is one thing, but how you actually did it because of crossing the line is also equally important. So hope that's helped with you guys.
1: Yeah. And look the other thing I'll say about incentive schemes is people are inclined to have identical, you know, they 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 want to have the perfect incentive scheme. So they set it across the whole organization identically. If you look at Karen and I as examples of incentive schemes and you put money on the table for us, you're not going to incentivize us enormously. If you put opportunity to develop and grow, yeah, we'll be, we'll jump into those. So the other thing to remember is what is the benefit I get from my incentive program? You might put a monetary value on it, Mm -hmm. but don't always think money, okay, because you'll be very surprised to learn how few people, senior people, are driven by money in organisations which are driven by really engaged client outcomes.
0: That's been my experience of our, our clients, Andrew. In terms yeah. of when we've done succession, I'm sorry, a, a retention um, and remuneration advisory, that that's exactly what's happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there are some places like banking where money, money matters. Okay, mm. money's everything. But mm. you'll find in the food industry, for instance, it's not. It's often travel, growth, opportunity, a whole lot of different things. It's a completely side discussion. Yeah, I think a really relevant one. So, can you take that down for us now and put up the case study?
0: Case study. Okay.
1: Okay, cool. and it's over to Karen to read the case study.
0: Okay, let's see if there's any tricky words in here, Andrew. Anyway. <laughs>
1: All well, right, by the way, having a word of the week that I've got to put into a problem for Karen next week, if you could start submitting those, that would be great.
0: Word of the week. Okay, I put in something tricky. I guarantee you, I will pronounce it incorrectly and proudly so. With that, let's go. So Angelo was a care worker at Carrick Adolescent and Teenager Home. Cat last week was dog, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yeah, it was clever, dog, Andrew. Like it. On 12 October, he received a notice from Cat saying he must have his first vaccination by 15 October or on or an appointment before 22 October and final vaccination on or before 26 November. Cat was happy to assist Angelo with an appointment. They suggested several dates at a friendly health clinic located near Angelo. The notice was correct in its requirement of Angelo and said it constituted a lawful and reasonable direction. It required Angelo to meet with, with HR on 13 October at 10 a.m. Angelo met Brett from HR as directed. Angelo came to the meeting with a list of demands drawn from social media about efficacy of the vaccination, safety issues, etc. Brett explained that it was a government directive and that Angelo must comply unless he had an exception under the directive. Angelo said he didn't but forcing him to have a vaccination to work was illegal, amounted to bullying, and he would take action if forced. Angelo did not provide proof of vaccination on 15 October and sent a letter reiterating his demands. Brett arranged a meeting with Angelo on 18 October. Angelo attended this meeting. Brett explained he would be suspended without pay for two weeks. He explained that if he had not had his first vaccination by the end of the suspension, 1 November, and had an appointment for the second before 26 November, His employment would be terminated without further discussion. Angelo said this was further evidence of bullying. Angelo refused to return calls and did not provide evidence of vaccination by 1 November. At 5pm, Brett sent a letter to Angelo confirming the termination of his employment. Okay.
1: Okay, now we go to poll. Again, a tricky one this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's go through what the answer questions were. The first one, Had... Cat failed to comply with its safety obligations, as alleged by Angelo, particularly the obligation to consult. The answer, quite correctly, is no, it hadn't failed to comply with its um, safety obligations because it's a mandatory order. There was no obligation to consult. The next question is, did Angelo fail to comply with a lawful and reasonable direction? See, these are all pretty easy ones, aren't they? The answer is yes, he definitely did fail to comply with a lawful and reasonable direction. So now we get into the harder ones. Was there a valid reason for termination under section 387A of the Fair Work Act? And the answer that people are saying is mainly yes, yeah. overwhelmingly, and yes, it was a valid reason because it came from mandatory order. It had to be complied with, and there were no other obligations that existed around the employer in respect of the notification of that lawful and reasonable direction. Was the termination otherwise harsh, unjust, or unreasonable in the meaning? Can I just say this is the hard question, and I've got to tell you, it was unreasonable. The reason it was unreasonable is they gave a pre-warning. In other words, at the beginning of the two-week period, they said you will be terminated unless you provide the vaccination, and therefore they didn't provide an opportunity at the end of it to actually provide the procedural fairness required under 387, okay, because they don't know at that time whether the person was unwell the person was in hospital. They know nothing about the person. But mm-hmm. so the answer is in this process, you must meet at the end of that suspension period to do the show cause process. You can't just do it at the beginning. And that's why I said this was a tricky question, okay?
0: So the lesson there, Andrew, is context, yeah? That's very, very important.
1: Yeah, the real thing is that whenever you go to terminate someone's employment, make sure the show cause process happens at the time of termination It doesn't predate it and just say, well, there's a triggering event. If you don't do this by this time, you're gone, okay, because lots of things can happen in between. The last question you may think is a joke, but it's already happened three times now with our clients. If Angelo put in a workers' comp claim before his termination date, would his claim be accepted because of the process? Okay, so there's two questions here. There's two factual questions that I want to take you to. The first one is Angelo has alleged there has been bullying towards him and the process was illegal. He would have no success with that argument at all and the process that's described by cat would be successful to show reasonable management action in respect of the bullying part of it, okay? He doesn't allege the bullying was any broader than the requiring to vaccination. Now, what we're seeing at the moment is a number of people saying things like people are asking me about my vaccination status who don't have a lawful basis for asking That's a different issue and that has risk around it, okay? But the question goes back to question number four. By having this meeting which says you will be terminated, no matter what, if you don't provide a vaccination status, it is indeed arguable that is not reasonable management action for the reasons I've described above. So questions four and five are linked. So can you please map out your process to determine not only that you're going to end up with a good termination process that will stand up, but that you don't end up with a compensation claim which keeps the person employed forever or for the first year at least because of the stress-related crime they bring against you for failing to follow the right process. Now, remember in question five, they must end up with a psychological injury, but I assure you they'll have a GP who says they do. Now, see you later, Karen. Enjoy
0: your freedoms, everybody. Yes, indeed. Have a great weekend. All right. Bye, everyone.